Good afternoon, I'm Joe Dworsky and welcome to Freedom to Buy, presented each week by Supernet, which is the only payment network that enables credit card payments for cannabis merchants and consumers. Uh, each week, uh, this podcast will take you behind the scenes of banking, finance, payments, and technology to help educate both businesses and listeners like you on how to make the most of your purchasing power in the world of credit. Today, my guest is at the helm of Nimble Strategies, or NMBL is the acronym pronounced Nimble Strategies, the CEO, Eric Morcheski. Eric, thank you uh, for joining us this afternoon. Thank you so much for having me today. This is uh, exciting for us. I found it interesting in my research. I, you know, I was looking NMBL strategies. Who's NMBL strategies? My wife and I founded Nimble Strategies in 2019 with the idea initially really of, of piggybacking on some of the work that I had done and that she had done in, in our careers, including I, I had led the largest public-private partnership in National Park Service history, the renovation of the Gateway Arch in St. Louis and the surrounding area. Her background was a lot of tourism and public relations uh, work for uh, hotels. And so we really saw an opportunity to take that, that knowledge and experience and work with a lot of nonprofits initially on their strategic planning, leadership development, and really how they could present themselves to the world and pr promote their own efforts. And through that, about uh, two weeks in, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who I had gone to grad school with. And he said, I need a finance person for a receivership. And through that effort, because when someone calls you and you're two weeks in, you don't turn down paying work. And so I, I really took the, took the role and, and ran with it. And we've been able to do a lot more in the receivership and insolvency and turnaround space as a, as a way of also working with the nonprofits that we started out setting out to work with. A focus for Nimble are nonprofits, small businesses, public and private partnerships, and now you've added the receivership. Is that correct? That's correct. We, we get to work a lot with the small business side ends up being a lot of our change management work, although we're doing some on the nonprofit side as well. As well. We, we do get to work with those small businesses, both through chief restructuring officer type of work through mergers and acquisitions, but also then this receivership space. And the receivership space is a little bit of a niche across the country and around the world. It's more common in other countries like Canada, New Zealand, Australia, so several other locations. But in the U.S., it's actually predates the bankruptcy practice, but because bankruptcy is federal, and I think more likely people understand it better because there's a personal bankruptcy as well as a corporate bankruptcy. Receivership space is kind of a, a niche industry uh, for for the United States. And out of these particular uh, verticals, is there any one out of the, the the four that we mentioned that you know is a bigger focus for the nimble team uh, based on? the overall backgrounds of the members, or is it equally across the board? You look at all opportunities. When we set out, we really thought there was a great opportunity for us to, you know, when times were good, we'd work with nonprofits. And when times were bad, 
we would work in the receivership space. And we thought, what a great balance we have here. Little did we know eight months later, this thing called COVID would hit. And we we hadn't planned for that one. And so we were fortunate to you know survive that as a small business and a, a new business that couldn't get out and couldn't market ourselves, couldn't go meet with people. And so we've really been very fortunate in that aspect. And, and today they the the change management in the nonprofit work really come out to about 50-50 in our business right now. So it, it's a good balance for us to have that when when things change, we've still got something to to work on and something to offset if something slows down or picks up. Okay. Okay. I understand that obviously the, the three pillars that I've researched, I guess, are strategic planning, leadership development, and change management is what you really focus on in terms of helping these nonprofits, small businesses, and public and private partnerships, um, uh, you know, uh, enhance. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, the approach of, you know, utilizing those strategies within some of your relationships? Yeah, all three of those really work as pillars that play off of each other. I think one of the things that we found that's pretty common, whether it's a nonprofit or small business, is that nobody has quite as much money as they would like, and they all want something done really quickly. And so we really try to use education for for our strategic planning and our leadership development to make sure that people understand what they should be buying, because that does allow you to move quicker, uh, to be nimble, as as we would uh, like to say, and, and hence our name of Nimble Strategies. But it gives us that ability to make sure that people understand what they should be purchasing with a strategic plan, especially, but also with our leadership development focus. I think strategic planning is a very ambiguous term. Uh, You could go to five different consultants and they'd give you five different answers of what you should be purchasing when when you're paying for a strategic plan. So we've really taken that approach to educate the public and educate uh, our potential clients in the nonprofit and small business space of what that effort should look like. On the public-private partnership side, we still see that as more uh, similar to really what we were doing at the Gateway Arch Park Foundation prior to fund- founding Nimble Strategies, which is building groups together to, to really improve an area uh, working with groups in Dallas and Seattle prior to COVID on some major projects that aren't going to get done by any one group. They aren't going to be done privately with private funds. They aren't going to be done exclusively publicly with just public funds. And so bringing the groups together, and it, again, this still comes back a little bit to that strategic planning and business planning that we do, because ultimately everyone comes into a public-private partnership with an idea of what they want out of it. And sometimes they don't verbalize that well, and everyone always assumes that they're all heading towards the same direction. But when everyone assumes they end up missing key pieces and key needs of their partners in a public-private partnership, Uh, similar to a joint venture for small businesses on that, in that you really do need to understand the intentions of everybody involved to really get the best possible outcome. So Again, I think what fundamentally ties all three of these areas for us together is that education piece and making sure that people understand how this plays out, what it should look like, and, and ultimately where you should be able to go out of out of that work. 
Okay, great. That's a, a great overview. Um, I, I'm looking at uh, some of the information that was provided ahead of our uh, our interview, and it also talks about, I guess, at Nimble, you also focus a little bit on, on M&A activity within business. Can you talk a little bit about the M&A uh, part of your practice and with what's going on in, in the economy today? Is that is there more activity for the you know the M and A or do you see a, a you know a, a slowdown or 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 a speed up companies trying to come together because of the tough times? I think one of the areas we're seeing a speed up in this has kind of always been in the back of my mind, but never at the forefront is on the nonprofit side. So a nonprofit merger or acquisition is very different than a for-profit because you don't have shareholders. You don't have someone that's choosing to financially benefit by being acquired or merging into another entity. What you have in a nonprofit side is a board of directors that is voting to disband their own entity and transfer their assets to another one. And in doing so, it you're voting as an executive director, as a board of directors, you're voting yourselves out of a role. And people don't typically like to do that. They like to believe that their impact is greatest when they're a part of an organization. And so that can be a really difficult process. We're seeing right now with some of the nonprofits we're working with that there is opportunity to really merge these entities together and see a bigger outcome and a better outcome because they've they've been brought together. Um, there's been several groups over the years that have done this really well. Uh, the Boys and Girls Clubs come, come to mind first. Um, they used to all operate individually and they've been consolidating into city or regional efforts. Um, on the public, uh, on the for-profit side, we're probably seeing a little less interest in Mergers, merger work. And what we're mm -hmm. seeing is there is an interest and an appetite still for acquiring assets or pieces. Um, so sometimes that is in a, a full company. Sometimes that's just mm -hmm. a division of a company, or sometimes that's uh, going as far as just looking at we we could really use certain pieces of the business. So either equipment right. Um, especially equipment side has been a, a hot topic because it's so many pieces of equipment have been hard to get recently, especially if you're in the construction industry, finding that major equipment can be difficult to get new pieces right now. Okay. can I, I want to go back to the nonprofit because I, I find that fascinating. Um, it's something that I, obviously we all know about nonprofits, but what you, what you hit on in, with the M&A activity I find that very interesting. So, but what are some of the reasons? I mean, I imagine financial constraints might be reasons. Can you talk about why nonprofits might, you know, merge, roll up together, um, and why um, why you're seeing more of that lately? Financial constraints is probably the biggest one. Um, okay. One of the one of the more common nonprofit mergers is hospital systems. I think despite all of us probably going to a hospital at some point in our lives, we don't always realize that many of them actually are registered as nonprofits as a 501c3. And so that that does happen there. But what we're seeing on kind of especially on the smaller side in that space is there are financial constraints. A lot of times 
you get used to hearing when you're on the nonprofit side in that nonprofit leadership role is, you know, why are two of you doing a similar thing, but both of you are asking me for money as, as a donor? And that that kind of starts to build relationships, hopefully, not not adversaries. I think one of the mm-hmm. things that's really nice in the nonprofit space is people tend to work together a lot more than private companies do because mm-hmm. it's not seen necessarily as true competition, um, which makes things a little easier to kind of progress through. But again, you do have to then go into, all right, now, how do I convince a board that they should vote to dissolve themselves? And so usually that requires more than just a financial constraint. Usually there's a a reasoning. That reasoning could be we've lost our, you know, executive director and we're not really, you know, we're struggling to find staffing because staffing has been such a difficult process for across the country. And so there are typically entities that run a similar or same mission. Maybe their mission is the same, but it's for a different area, like the Boys and Girls Club example. Or sometimes it can be uh, something more along the lines of we just don't see the energy behind our organization keeping us going. And so we're going to start a transfer of assets to someone who has more structure in place and and more of a long-term feasibility. Do these nonprofits, in in this example that we're talking about, in terms of the role of the merging of nonprofits, does the Nimble team seek out to try to bring two nonprofits together? Maybe you have a couple nonprofits in your portfolio and you see an opportunity, so you present it, or is it more organic when it just, you know, materializes in the marketplace and they're seeking you out? I mean, can you talk a little bit about that, how that comes about? So we we see a little bit of both. We do occasionally, as we're doing the strategic planning for nonprofits, we do see occasionally where someone is a good opportunity for them to look at, at mergers or uh, with other nonprofits. Alternatively, we do get people coming to us to say, we're in the process of a nonprofit, uh, a nonprofit merger or nonprofit acquisition we need some help in doing this the right way. Uh, Okay. That that makes sense. And can you talk a little bit also about this newer uh, part of the business that you set up about 18 months ago, the Commercial Receivers Association? Sounds very fascinating. I was reading a little bit about it, but I'd love to learn more. This has been a great opportunity for not just ourselves as a company, but for improving the process of commercial receivership across the country. I was fortunate enough to get to start working on commercial receiverships about four or five years ago. And through that have been able to build the experience with the local attorneys here in St. Louis that we were able to work with and and build the Commercial Receivers Association. Since we started it, we really have opened that up. We've opened up about 15 markets so far with four more already planned for the rest of this year. We've got members across about 22 states and commercial receivership, because it's a unique business opportunity and a unique aspect of, of the business world. Most people don't really understand what it means. In its simplest terms, I typically relate it to people as it is the state version of bankruptcy. Bankruptcy is a federal protection. And as such, it is there to make sure that you have this federal protection. But in receivership, 
it is a state statute. And so it ends at the state lines. And so it can be a really good opportunity, especially as people look at chapter sevens and chapter 11s for bankruptcy. Those have become so expensive to operate because of the processes in place. And so a state court receivership can be much faster and much more efficient and, and much less expensive, which if you're a small business operating in a singular state, that can really work for you. When you start to get to five or six states where you'd have to file a receivership in each state, maybe it doesn't work the same way and it doesn't work for you. The other kind of major difference is the creditors and equity holders all could file potentially for a receivership, whereas bankruptcy is a protection for the debtor. And so their bankruptcy is your protection. Receivership is an opportunity if a bank has loaned money and someone has absconded with th that money. They can go in and pursue it. I think we're all aware there's been some pretty major receivership talk over the last year on the banking side uh, with mm -hmm. Silicon Valley Bank and, and Signature Bank. Mm -hmm. uh, so that term is maybe a little more familiar for people. That is that is run by the FDIC. That is a very unique animal within the receivership space. What we're talking about is much more of operational companies or oftentimes apartment complexes or condo associations can can utilize it as well. Okay. So once again, you're with a, a receivership, you lose those bankruptcy protections. So that, that must be a, a big decision that needs to be made with these smaller, you know, companies, if you will, which direction to go. So how do you guide the company, you know, away from bankruptcy to the receivership model, uh, given the um, the lack of protections. I will note, so every state has different statutes. And okay. so states like Missouri have updated their statutes in the last decade, and there are a lot more protections than there used to be. It, over the last, in 2002, the state of Washington actually passed their statute reform um, and they were really the first state since then. Minnesota and Missouri were basically the next two. But over the last decade, about 18 states have updated their receivership statutes to include a little bit more protections in there similar to bankruptcy. So the most common one that people want to see in, in a bankruptcy or, or a receivership statute would be a stay order. So meaning that no one can come in and file a lawsuit against the company while it's under protection. Well, that now exists um, a state statute in, in many of those states, whereas in bankruptcy, it's a given and it happens right away so that a bankruptcy trustee or in, in the receivership space, a commercial receiver could come in and make sure that they can figure out what's happening before they start getting slammed with lawsuits or, or eviction notices or anything else. They, they're able to represent the judge, because that's ultimately what a receiver is, is they are a representative of the judge. Uh, and as representative of the judge, they need to be able to give that judge valid information as someone who doesn't represent the plaintiff or the defendant or anyone else. They only represent the judge. They can come in with clean eyes and, and make that representation. They can provide information and seek it out without a, any bias towards any party involved in the case. So, okay, that, that's interesting. Well, with that, I mean, 
we talked a little bit earlier, um, you're seeing, I guess, activity in the cannabis space within this this new business vertical uh, in the Receivers Association, the Commercial Receivers Association. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you're seeing across the, the country? Cannabis space is an interesting one and it probably plays about as perfectly into receivership as you could possibly hope for because it is federally illegal. You can't go file for bankruptcy in cannabis. That isn't an option today. Now, at some point, if the federal government chooses to legalize it, that would open up a bankruptcy practice to it. But for the time being, you have limited options. And so what's also played into a lot of the cannabis receiverships are a lot of cash has flowed into investment in these companies because of how the tax structure works out for these businesses. They have different entities set up oftentimes with different owners in different pieces. And so as money has poured in and there's a concern over who's actually reaping the benefits out of that with separate entities set up for retail, for manufacturing, for growing, for properties, for payroll, there is a constant concern from these investors then of who's actually benefiting from it if it's not them. Um, And so we've run into, there's a distinct need, but there wasn't really a valid practice to solve that need of, we have a problem, now what do we do? And receivership really steps in very well because it's a state practice versus a federal practice to let the courts come in, assess the situation and either return it back to the individuals if if you can resolve the problem or if you can't, it also becomes a sales process and a liquidation process um, that can be very structured and, and prevent concerns over insider trading or many other issues that might arise on a private sale process. A lot of activity in that space, unfortunately, and you'll probably see some more. I came across an interesting quote of yours on YouTube. Make short-term, three to six months plans perform new risk analysis. Can you explain what you mean by that? So... Whenever we're doing strategic planning, leadership development work, what we run into is people really trying to look at long-term. And it's easy to assign big goals for long-term, but you need those little steps in those three to six month periods, maybe 12, depending on what it is, to really understand how to get to that five-year goal. It's uh, one of the things that we find a lot with strategic planning is people like to write the big goals down. And that's it's fun. It's exciting. We're going to conquer the world. These are the great things we're going to do. And without knowing how to get there, strategic plans often sit on a shelf, unused, unlooked at until five years later when someone comes back to do it again. And you need those three to six month pieces to make sure that you can be walking the right steps to reach that final destination. Okay. That's clear. That makes sense. And also I found, I found fascinating um, in some of your travels, it says that you've spoken to NAFTA, the world urban parks Congress, and many other domestic international events. Um, can you talk a little bit about your experiences speaking to NAFTA and some, and, and traveling, uh, you know, to speak about what Nimbles does and overall just, you know, the space? 
you've done your research. I have to give you a lot of credit. <laughs> but it, uh, I've, I've been very fortunate to get to speak to a lot of these groups about the work that we've done here, as well as the work that I've done previously. I had been the CFO of one of the largest museum design companies in the world. And we, I think, had done projects in about 22 countries. I had set up our operations in Singapore and in Shanghai and was commuting back and forth to DC at the time. That's so a long it, commute. <laughs> it is. It can be a very brutal commute. And I guess you built up a lot of frequent flyer points. <laughs> yeah. So lots of frequent flyer points. And fortunately I can sleep well on planes. Otherwise it would have been pretty rough, but it, I've gotten to speak then to NAFTA as a part of the public private partnership that we formed for the Gateway Arch Park Foundation, the work that was there they really wanted to learn about some of the work we were doing with the riverfront in St. Louis because it was really focused on climate change and some of the impacts that are made. And one of the things that was a real unique aspect of the project, one that was done by someone much smarter than I am, uh, we raised the riverfront about 18 inches. And in doing so, that took out about 67% of our flood days on the riverfront outside the arch ground. So it was a much more usable space. And people would say to us, well, why didn't you take it up three feet or four feet? Well, that would have created a bigger push of the river downstream from us and created more floods downstream. And so it was a very strategic move to make sure that we were being respectful of our neighboring communities. And so I think that was really where NAFTA felt that we were really providing a valuable insight into that community. And then on the World Urban Park stage, we've gotten to talk about some of the great work that happens within park spaces all the time and, and how to really think through strategy and communications. I think one of the things that uh, people get tied up in is that it's a local park. And typically in a local park, maybe as much as 95% of your visitation comes from within two or three miles. But sometimes you have a local park with a unique aspect like the St. Louis Arch. And there is a visitation that comes from abroad. And so we do try to help people understand how to market and what those stories are that are interesting and intriguing to which media, because a story may not be of interest to national media, only interest to local or vice versa, depending on what that story is and how you tell it. And so we do a lot with that. And I mentioned earlier, my wife who co-founded the organization with me and Nimble Strategies, uh, her background is public relations and tourism. So it plays off very well to help help people in understanding how to maximize the impact that their organization is making. Well, that's fascinating. I mean, this is very, very informative, very enjoyable. I learned a lot. Finally, before we wrap up, you mentioned, you know, your wife is, uh, you know, your partner, you started the company together. Can you talk a little bit about the, the team that you assembled and, and uh, the specialties that they focus on? We've got, I believe, seven staff members at this point um, coming initially from people that I worked with over the years and people that I I knew who they were and, and how we worked together and how we interacted together. Obviously, my wife, I, I know her pretty well. Um, <laughs> <but> <laughs> we also then are managing director of nonprofit services. My old firm had designed the B.B. King Museum and he was the president of the B.B. King Museum when we designed it. We then designed the National Blues Museum, and he was hired as the president there while we were working on it. 
while I was at the Arch, we partnered on Blues at the Arch in St. Louis to create a free concert series on the Arch grounds, really highlighting the National Blues Museum. He moved away for a period of time to go run the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. Um, when he came back, we were fortunate enough to hire him to run our nonprofit services group. Got a great director of business development and project management that she really handles all of our clients from cradle to grave and, and everything in between. And then some new staff that has come on more recently that wasn't people I had worked with that are new hires out of college. And so it's it's great to get their insights and their excitement behind it all. And I think it's it's always fun to kind of learn even from them of which pieces of the business they find more interesting and where they want to put their time and energy and effort, whether it's the receivership work or whether it's nonprofits or whatever else it is that we might be doing. Oh, that's great. I mean, that's a great overview. It's very, very interesting. Uh, I really appreciate your time today. This has been uh, very informative for myself and I hope uh, and I believe for our listeners as well. Before uh, we close out, how can our listeners uh, learn more about Nimble Strategies? And if they want to contact uh, yourself or uh, some of your colleagues, how do they uh, go about reaching out and contacting? So with a last name like Morcheski, we don't <laughs> ask people to figure out how to spell that in an email. Uh, so, <laughs> Well, my, my name's similar, Dworsky. You got that. Yeah, yeah at least you've got the uh, short seven letters. We, we wanted to extend it out. But yeah, so it's uh, Eric at nimblestrategies.com or any of our other staff, it's their first name at nimblestrategies.com. And of course, they can go to our website, nimblestrategies.com to find out more information, even if it's just to educate themselves on, on what they should be thinking about or what they should be doing or how they should be looking at different aspects of their own organizations. Okay, great. Uh, that, that, that's terrific. Okay. Well, thanks for listening uh, to Freedom to Buy this afternoon, presented each week by Supernet. You can learn more about our payment network by visiting our website uh, at supernet.ai. You can also find our podcast and listen to past episodes of Freedom to Buy at Cannabis Radio. Uh, you can also find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Uh, please join us next week uh, and learn more about the Freedom to Buy. And I thank you for your time this afternoon. Opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.